you are the first guy I've heard to kind of talk about the idea that opiate withdrawal can be traumatizing because like everybody, we kind of reach this conclusion that opiate, people addicted to opiates are afraid of being dope sick. And I, I don't think it does what you just said any justice. It's like, well, no, people might have been traumatized by it, and they've been so traumatized that they never want to go through that again. Yes. And that will lead them to, like, crazy drug-seeking behavior sometimes. Yes. Doing things they normally wouldn't do to get drugs. Yes. Um, so, man, I am so glad that you, you've talked about this. The other thing that I think is extremely, extremely important to understand any of these medications and this includes Suboxone, is just one piece of the puzzle. The press has not done justice to opiate replacement medications because at this point they're saying, well, or not even necessarily the press, but sometimes you know, politicians will talk like this, that if we could just get everybody on Suboxone, then the opiate epidemic would be solved. That is not reality at all. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it's doing people a disservice. Uh, for anybody to believe that just going on a medication is going to solve this problem for them, it's not being grounded in reality. You have to do your work. Uh, in the book that I'm hopefully going to finish soon, I have what I call the big four. This is in the 25 years that I've been working with individuals with opiate dependence, I have never come across an individual that did not have one of the big four that was driving their opiate use. Even people that originally will come in and swear up and down that they don't have any other symptoms, and this is just about getting off opiates, when, you, when they get a little bit deeper in treatment and you scratch the surface a little more, they do. So the big four, anxiety, trauma, depression, and insomnia. Mm -hmm. So, and you can have more than one, but I would say every person with an opiate dependence that I have treated in the 25 years I've been doing this work, uh, and since 2003, I've been using Suboxone uh, as part of this work. So 14 of those years, every individual that I've worked with has one of those four, and that is part of what's driving their use. And one of the challenges if you open up a textbook and you look up symptoms of opiate withdrawal, it's not hard to do. You can Google it. Nobody needs textbooks anymore. So yeah. <laughs> if you were to just Google what are the symptoms of opiate withdrawal, you're going to come up with a list. Then Google something else. Google or look it up in a textbook. What are the symptoms of anxiety? This has nothing to do with substance use. Just what are the, what are the symptoms of, in, in mental health, generalized anxiety disorder? But you can just say anxiety and you'll get the same information. Now, one of the surprises that people come up with, it is just about exactly the same symptoms as opiate withdrawal. There's a couple of exceptions. Uh, you don't get the goose flesh with generalized anxiety. Uh, you don't get the runny nose, watery eyes. So some of the more physical symptoms. But those you don't get with anxiety, but even the stomach upset, feeling nauseous, maybe even throwing up, your blood pressure going up, even those joint aches, bone pain. Uh, a lot of times people with, that are coming off of opiates will say, no, that is very specific to opiate withdrawal. I know what that is. But if you are worried about having it, 
you can actually have it from anxiety versus opiate withdrawal. But the mind is a powerful thing. So there's a huge overlap. Anxiety is the most common symptom I see. But if you are not treating what is driving the opiate use, you're not going to heal. You're not going to move forward. That's why I don't know if anybody out there has heard of, uh, they call it the ultra-rapid detox. Have you heard of that, Ted? I actually have not, so I'm ex- I want to hear what this is, man. You do not want to do this. Uh, it costs about $10,000 uh, out of pocket. No insurance covers it. You can go, you know, there's, there's a few places in the country that do this. But what ultra-rapid detox is basically you get put under anesthesia for about three days the thinking being somebody that has an opiate habit, if you just knock them out for the worst time that they're going to go through their opiate withdrawal, then they will come out of it. They will be opiate free. Their bodies will be detoxed and all will be good. Because they won't be traumatized by the withdrawal. Right. There's only one problem. It doesn't work. <laughs> and the reason it doesn't work is that you are not addressing what's driving the use to begin with. A lot of times people that have opiate habits believe that it's just about the physical withdrawal. I hear that a lot in my practice when people come in for treatment, that it's just about the withdrawal. Doc, if I could just get through the withdrawal, I know I would be fine. I could live my life. I would never touch an opiate again. More often than not, that's not true. So anxiety, yeah. So anxiety and depression. And I, I just uh, saw some articles with the National Institute of Health and SAMHSA looking at like the rate in the U.S. of somebody having a legitimate anxiety disorder. So we're talking like panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, OCD. Somewhere between thirteen and seventeen percent of the population. Oh, it's a, that, that's that's low. That's on the low end. Yes, it's much. And people that have substance use disorders. It is much higher. Yeah. I think it's higher in the general population. Yeah. We so. just don't talk about it. But for folks that have had, that have substance use disorders, I would say it is much higher. I'd say it's over 50%. And then the other uh, key statistic I, I've seen kind of quoted a bunch of times is the number of people who actually have a legitimate substance use disorder and having what they call a dual diagnosis, like an anxiety or depression disorder, like that's running like almost like 60%. Again, I think it's higher. Higher than that. So it's really kind of getting back to what you kind of outlined, your big four, which is anxiety and depression, that you really got to look at that as an underlying issue. You might have that. And then what's the, I think you talk about insomnia, which I'd have to say as a, as a treatment provider myself, there's certain things I look back on that I've made mistakes on, or I just wasn't educated enough to really search for these things. But like, I don't think we ask enough about insomnia. No, well, part of that is withdrawal will cause inability to sleep. So it's this catch-22, but there are a lot of people out there that are using because they can't get to sleep otherwise. And then if you can't this get to sleep, pushing yeah. Them. And, and that is more common with things like alcohol, marijuana. I see that for a lot of people, opiates tend to be energizing. In fact, this is going to be, I don't know what you had said before, one of, one of those take-home messages, write yeah. it down. People that are vulnerable to abusing opiates or to becoming addicted to opiates, and this actually includes little kids, they have an opposite reaction, opiates 
tend to energize them. For somebody whose brain is not wired to become dependent on opiates, opiates make them a little bit nauseous, a little bit tired. I have folks that I treat that have other addictions that are not opiates that will say, I cannot understand how anybody could get hooked on pills or heroin. I take it and it just makes me feel nauseous. It makes me a little tired. It doesn't get me high. I can't understand it. People whose brains, and you are born this way, one of my patients who is on Suboxone, so she is opiate dependent, she's doing very well in treatment, her nine-year-old son had his tonsils out, never had an opiate before, he's a very quiet, shy kid, not involved, he doesn't have a peer group that's using substances, he's nine, although some nine-year-olds are using substances, not this kid. So he had his tonsils out, the doctor gave him a small prescription, I think it was for Vicodin, just in case he had a hard time once they sent him home. He did have a hard time. He was in a lot of pain. His mom gave him a Vicodin. What happened next was the last thing that she was expecting. Uh, this shy kid who was in pain because his throat was hurting all of a sudden started yelling and said, I want to jump up on the table right now. And they almost had to physically restrain him. This was a very good and very dramatic example in a little kid. It energized this kid. He's got the wiring. When his mom told me this story, I said, it's going to be very important for you to educate him as he gets older, as he gets into middle school, into high school, as he's around, you know, other kids that are experimenting, he needs to know. I can tell her with 100% certainty that her son has the wiring, that if he is to start experimenting with opiates, he's got the wiring, he's going to like them too much. There's a very high risk that he's going to become addicted to them. What a great real life story, Matt. What a phenomenal real life story. So we have... Anxiety, depression, insomnia, what's the fourth? Trauma. Trauma. Past trauma. Opiates are very good numbing agents. They numb out pain and they numb out emotions. So somebody that's been through something traumatic, a lot of times when people think about PTSD, they think about veterans that have been through combat, and that is certainly... Uh, one way to get PTSD and a lot of folks that have, you know, come back from Iraq, Afghanistan, do have symptoms of PTSD. Um, some of them aren't getting treated, but it is pretty common. I did some work with the VA for a lot of years, so I, I, I did see a lot of those folks. But the other way, you can have trauma for episodes that have nothing to do with being in war. You could be physically abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused when you were young, excessively bullied. There's a lot of different ways to have something traumatic happen to you. And if you don't do treatment for those issues, we don't heal from those things. So we just kind of carry them and they just become this wound inside us. And Everybody has probably had some trauma in their lives. We've all had bad things happen to us. Or you, you lose somebody that you love. Or you just see something really bad. There, there, there's all kinds of ways to have trauma. But what winds up happening, people that have had a lot of trauma, when they discover opiates, opiates just like numbing out pain. It numbs out those emotional wounds. That becomes very powerful. 
So in addition to those folks that are wired, they get very energized when they use opiates. There's also those folks that have been through trauma where an opiate may be the first thing that they discover that takes that inner emotional pain away. So that becomes very reinforcing as well. And I see a lot of people that that's the reason. And as they slowly come off of opiates, their trauma symptoms come back, which can lead to relapse if they're not being adequately treated with counseling and trauma work. It is possible to heal from trauma, but it takes work. Which is kind of like what, what I have seen in my treatment experiences We with some people's they get clean, um, they stop using, and they're going through like a treatment program, but then their anxiety, their depression, they start having flashbacks, their trauma goes through the rough. And it's like, if this is what sobriety is going to be like, I know I want to be sober. Um, I don't know if I'm really up for this kind of sobriety. It's very rational if you think about it, because who wants to feel like that? Yeah. So that is part of the issue. That's part of the point I was making earlier. If you do not get those inner, and I don't want to just say inner demons because people think about them different ways, but you really need a good diagnostic workup. This is one of my beef with some doctors that are prescribing Suboxone. You just go in and you get a prescription and you don't get a more detailed evaluation of what's driving it. That, that is what I think is essential to do for everybody. You need to know. Now, there are people that I'll do the evaluation. Again, I've been doing this a long time. I can ask the right questions. I may tell somebody, I think you have underlying anxiety. They may, at the you know first meeting, they're going to, they may say, no, I don't. I, this is just all withdrawal. Usually within one to two months, they're getting it. And it's not because I'm just such an amazing persuader. It's because I'm telling them, I'm, I'm giving them cues and things to look for and they are starting to see them so again what i'm doing is i'm i'm enhancing their education but then we can start doing the real work if you're not treating what's driving the opiate use along with treating the opiate use i i, I don't think that's good treatment quite honestly so just having everybody on opiate replacement suboxone and methadone is not going to solve the problem because you still need to deal with what's driving it. And unfortunately, over time, if you don't deal with it, that's part of, you're, you're going to need more and more and more medication. And that's that's not what treatment is. Or you'll have to be on it for the rest of your life because... Which there is controversy. There, there are esteemed addiction specialists that will say you need to be on opiate replacement for the rest of your life. I do not believe that. I do not work out of that model in my practice. And I have successfully guided a whole lot. I should probably be keeping statistics better. I would say over 100 in the 14 years I've been doing this, definitely hundreds of people I have been able to guide them off of. So they've, so they've come in, they've been hooked, they're addicted, they see you, they go through the treatment, but you're not just addressing the medication end of things. Obviously you're addressing that, but then you're also able to successfully address maybe some of these underlying issues. They've Absolutely. Had. And they need to do treatment team. usually with somebody more specialized, a more specialized therapist. There are wonderful trauma therapists out there. There there's, there's all types of therapy. I don't tend, I, I will, I do 30 minute appointments with people 
therapists do an hour. There's a lot more you can get done in an hour. So I can be useful. I I can usually pull things that, you know, I, I can identify things real well, but as far as far as doing the actual deep treatment, I, I will point people, and again, just like what I was saying with having a treatment program that's a right match, I've had people say, you know, I don't like counseling. I went once and it was just useless. You have to have, and you understand this. Yes, I totally do. Counselor, <laughs> you have to have the right match for a yes. counselor. If you are not feeling comfortable with your counselor, you need to find another counselor. This yes. is not you. Counselors are people too, and not everybody clicks. And, I, and I'm going to even kind of go to the uh, backstage here. In terms of my treatment experience, in terms of being a provider and how they actually match people up in these big clinics, a lot of it's like the next therapist that has an opening on their caseload, and if the client's female match one with a female, if the client's male match one with a male. Not that every clinic did that, but I've seen my fair share of that, and it's not really spending a lot of time matching whatsoever. It's sort of like, oh, our therapists, you can, you can pretty much work with anybody because they're good therapists, but... That's not always the case, and so it's good to know that, hey, just like you might not have a primary care physician that's a good match, you can also have a therapist that's not a perfect match for you. Absolutely, and it is so important. One of the advantages I have, because I don't work in a big system, I know a lot of the therapists in town. I even know, for the most part, who works with what HMO, but what I will do when I do an initial evaluation with somebody, I'm going to get a good idea of who they're going to match up well with. I know every therapist has strengths and weaknesses, so I am going to direct them to somebody that I think, and again, nobody's right 100% of the time. I have a pretty good track record, but I'm going to match them up with somebody. Now, if they go and they meet that therapist and they come back and say, I didn't like that person, I'll send them to another therapist. I'm not yeah. going to tell them that they have to see that therapist. This is this is just so Recovery Nation knows. This is not an ordinary doctor by any stretch. Like really thinking about the best place to match people up with. I mean that that is not happening enough in the field. And you are so empowering just to be with you, Matt. And passing that on to your clients is awesome. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it, and I am at my happiest when I'm educating people. So this is perfect. Thank you.